Good morning, family of God. Hey, I want to take one more moment to pray. I know there's a lot going on in life right now, and there may be a lot going on in your heart. But let's just bow our heads for a moment, if you would join me and quiet ourselves in the presence of God. And I would uh, invite you to pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to you in a very personal way. Our text of Scripture is one in which Jesus is trying to help us really see some things that are often going down deep in our hearts that uh, we need help with. And he wants to help us today. So let's take a moment to pray for ourselves and for one another that we would be attentive and open to what Jesus wants to say to us. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help now. We thank you for creating us. We thank you for the life that we have in Christ. We thank you for the Holy Scriptures. And we ask that you would give us attentive minds, understanding minds, and soft, moldable hearts this morning. God, would you please help me to speak every word you want me to say and none that you don't. Speak your word with clarity and accuracy and with special empowering grace from the Holy Spirit. And I pray for myself and all of us here, God, we need you. We know that we need you. We just sung that we need you, but probably none of us knows how deeply we need you. And we're just asking that you would be ministering to us today in a way that is calling us into spiritual maturity, calling us into wisdom and holiness and wholeness. And bringing healing and transformation in places that we may not even know that we need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to immediately draw your attention to verse 47. If you'd look again at the text. It says, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. We'll just pause right there. That first half of that verse is alerting us to the reality that Jesus knows what's going, what's going on, on in the hearts of his disciples. Back 2,000 years ago, he knew what was going on in the hearts of Peter, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, Philip, and all the others that were walking around with him. And today, he knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows the stuff that we know about that we may not be comfortable talking about, but he also knows the stuff about us that we don't understand about ourselves. Anybody feel like your own heart is a mystery to you sometimes? You don't understand what's going on in there? I definitely feel that. But Jesus knows. He knows my thoughts, my conscious thoughts, but also the deeper, maybe subconscious motivations that I have. And in the text of Scripture we've just heard from Luke 9, 46 through 56, we're given three little snapshots of three moments in which Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And in all three of their, these moments... There's some stuff going on in their hearts which is not too pretty. There's some ugliness in their hearts, specifically pride, envy, comparison, and competition is what's driving them down deep in their hearts. 
And in these stories, God is holding up the disciples for us, not as role models for us to imitate, but as mirrors to show us the struggles that we deal with in our own heart. Pride, envy, comparison, competition. It's there in our own heart, too. And as I was meditating on this passage from Luke 9 this week, I was reminded of something C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity about the nature of pride. Some of you have read that book. But he was just summarizing what Christian teachers throughout, teachers throughout the ages have said about pride. And I want to read a few sentences to you now because I think it might give us a lens to help us see what's going on some in these stories that we're reading from Luke 9. Let me read it to you a little bit. C.S. Lewis said, Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison. That's a key word. Everybody say comparison. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. Mm. That's a challenging quote right there. And in our scripture text, we see the disciples of Jesus acting in exactly the way that C.S. Lewis described. They're comparing themselves to one another. They're competing. They're driven by pride and envy. And I will be honest. I feel like we ought to be honest um, dealing with a text like this. Sometimes I struggle with comparing myself to other people. Here's a confession mode. Did you know that um, years ago, an older brother in the Lord warned me and said, comparison always leads to pride or envy. Don't waste time comparing yourself to other people all the time, because either when you compare yourself to them, it seems like they're doing a little bit better than you. And then you start feeling envious and jealous or you start to think you're doing a little bit better than them and you start feeling prideful. But here's my confession. I was told that years ago, but I still do it. I still deal with it. And uh, maybe if we had confession time. Well, I won't put you on the spot. I won't put you on the spot today. I'm just going to make another confession. You also do it. Okay, I'm going to confess your sins now. <laughs> you struggle with the same thing. Um, sometimes you get on Instagram or Facebook. It's just research for your prayer life. I know you're just scrolling down, interceding for everybody. What's going on in their lives? But then you see somebody and they look so happy and smiley and their family's doing great. And if just based on this feed, everything's wonderful for them all the time. And you feel a little sp something inside of you, right? A little envy. Or you notice uh, their little, you know, anniversary picture or what it may, whatever it may be. And it looks kind of cute. And then you notice that it got 200 more likes than your anniversary picture. And it is cuter than your anniversary picture, but not 200 cuter, right? And so you start feeling a little bit extra envious. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, I don't get on social media. I'm too holy for that. But you do come to church. 
And sometimes when we come to church, we look to the left. And over there, the children are behaving. Or over there, the relationships look like they're thriving. Or they seem so into it and worship. And we start to think, we start to feel jealous of that life. Or then maybe we look to the right. And even worse, we start thinking, well, God, at least I'm not like that. Mm. Envy and pride, comparison. And the thing about it is you might try really hard not to do it, but it's just hard to shut it off. Have you noticed sometimes in life there's things you know that are not good for you? And if you could just flip the switch, turn off the comparison switch, you would do it, but it's much harder than that. Well, in this text of Scripture, the disciples are doing the same thing. But here's what I want to encourage you with. Jesus saw what was inside them, and he still loved them, and he wanted to help. And Jesus sees what's inside of you. He sees the good stuff. He sees the bad stuff. He sees the beautiful stuff. He sees the ugly stuff. He sees all of it, and he still loves you, and he wants to help. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. He wants to help. And... One of the things that our, our text will alert us to is this. Pride and envy and comparison and competition, they not only drive us to do bad stuff, sometimes they drive us to do good things, but still for the wrong reasons. So on the outside, everything looks great, but on the inside, we're still prisoners because we're still driven by this compulsive need for affirmation. From others to look a certain way. We all like to look successful. None of us likes to look like a failure. But I have good news for you today. Jesus wants to make you free on the inside too. He comes not only with forgiveness, but with transforming grace and power to show us how to walk in the way of freedom. So without further ado, let's dive in. And we're going to break this text into three little sections because there's really three separate interactions, but they're all showing us Jesus interacting with his disciples as they are manifesting different forms of pride, envy, comparison, and competition. First, let's look again at verses 46 through 48. It says, an argument arose among them. Does that still happen among God's people today sometimes, church? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here is a hypothesis. My hypothesis is that a pretty high percentage of the time, disciples of Jesus are arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Just like in this story. Sometimes, if we're new to this following Jesus thing, we do it out loud, like the disciples did in this story. But very often, we're doing it in our own heads. And I say this is my hypothesis because I think often, if Christian people are arguing about something else, what they're really arguing about is which one of us is the greatest. Who's the wisest? Who's the smartest? Whose opinion matters the most? Who should be able to make this decision? There's a competitiveness. We start comparing ourselves to one another and we want status or we want to be respected. Pride, competition, envy are there very often in our hearts. And if you find a group of Christians that that is always arguing about stuff, usually the issue below the issue is that that 
desire for recognition, that desire to be the greatest. Jesus, as we've already said, he knows that is going on in our hearts. He saw their hearts. He sees our hearts. And I think it's beautiful how Jesus responds here. Okay, when Jesus sees the disciples struggling with pride, he does not respond by telling them how worthless they are. The the cure to pride is not trying to have a low self-esteem. It is true that we're creatures who need God's grace. It's also true that we're sinners who need God's grace and forgiveness. Amen, church? But just trying to have a low self-esteem doesn't actually cure us of what's going on here. Jesus does something different. What he does is grab a child and, and invite him over close so the child is next to him. Now, apparently, from the clues we get in the Gospels, this conversation happens as they're journeying. They're walking down the road, and apparently this kid was already nearby. Remember, the disciples with Jesus are not just his 12, the inner circle. There's also a larger group of men and women who are following with him, and presumably there may be some of their families or kids that are with him, at least some of the time. So there's a kid nearby, and Jesus invites the kid to come stand by him. And he draws the disciples who are arguing about which of them is the greatest. He says, just look at this kid right here. Look at him. Or her. Pay attention. I would guess that the disciples weren't really even noticing the presence of this kid. Because when we're being driven by pride and envy, comparison and competition, who are we really most focused on? That's right. Ourselves. On me. And then if I'm going to fixate on somebody else, it's whoever I think of as my rival, right? The kid wasn't anybody's rival because nobody thought the kid was important. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, the whole gang, they're all worried about each other, which one is most important. So they're focused on themselves and their eyes are on each other and they're comparing. But this person that nobody thought was important, this little person, Jesus says, come here. And he says to them, If you receive this child, you receive me. I want you to ponder that, church. This is not one of the moments where Jesus is saying, become like a child. There's moments where he says things like that. We have to think about what he means. But here what he's saying is, stop looking at yourself. Start start looking at other people with my eyes of love. Just receive this child. This person that nobody else thinks is important. Open your heart to them, to him or to her. Give attention to this other person. And if you love, welcome, receive, give attention to this little person that nobody else thinks is important, you're receiving Jesus into your soul. That's a powerful statement. And then Jesus goes on and says, and when you receive me, you're also receiving my father who sent me. If you want to fight pride in your own life, well, let me ask you. C.S. Lewis just told us pride destroys community. Who would like to fight pride in your heart? Who would like to have a church in which we go to war against pride? And we don't let it rip us apart. We don't let it cause constant friction and conflict. Who would like to not have any big church splits over the next 10 years? That's one of my goals for the next decade. Amen. Every, I got enthusiasm on that. Man, Christians fighting with Christians is horrible. It's horrible. It happens throughout church history. It happened here in the Gospels. It was happening in Corinth. It was happening all over the New Testament. And I don't want to do it. Could we just choose fight for humility and love? Would you commit to do that with me, church? Here's what Jesus is saying. If you find yourself, despite your best intentions, struggling with comparison, deal, you're dealing with bitterness, you're dealing with envy, you're wanting recognition. Why do I never get 
asked to do such and such? Why did they never ask my opinion about such and such? And you're just dealing with all those thoughts. He says, just find somebody that other people are overlooked and love it and love them. And God will come alive in your soul. That's the picture. Then it moves on to story number two, verse 49. John answered. Master, we saw. Someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Notice in verse 49, it's John who's talking, the Apostle John. This is a guy, the guy who would eventually write the Gospel of John and the three letters that bear his name in your Bible. First John, second John, third John. If you've read those letters, if you've studied especially John's gospel and first John, you know, this man would grow to become one of the most spiritually mature, loving, holy, Christ exalting humans in the history of the world. He was going to become a really godly, wise, mature disciple of Jesus, which I think is very encouraging for those of us who are struggling, because in this moment, he's acting in a very immature way. And it's interesting, it says, John answered, meaning it seems like this is a continuation of the same dialogue, but John is just not getting it. And he says, what he says here, we saw somebody who was casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow. And then I want you to notice those next two words. I think they're the key. You might want to underline them. With us. He does not follow with us. Everybody say, with us. See, pride can have many forms, envy, comparison, competition. They can have many forms. It can be about individual rivalry. We're competing with one another as individuals trying to be the smartest or the coolest or uh, be perceived as the most holy. That's the worst when Christians are finding out being the most holy. Oh, my goodness. And we could do that at the individual level. But we can also do it at a community level. So now it's not I'm better than you. It's we are better than you. Our group is better than your group. And it seems to be that this is a person who had encountered Jesus, maybe had some kind of personal relationship with Jesus, trusted Jesus, and was doing good works. Hey, helping somebody who's tormented by a demon to get freedom. Does that sound like a good thing? Jesus has been doing it. The apostles have been doing it. And he's doing it in the name of Jesus. But what's bothering John is he's not one of ours. He doesn't follow with us. It's not part of our little group. So if the first story, 46 through 48, is about individualistic pride, this is probably more like group pride or what in our culture we're often calling tribalism. You hear people talking about tribalism these days? It's a word that's being used among cultural commentators and people describing so much of the friction and polarization and conflict that's happening in our society. I pick a tribe to identify with, and that doesn't, that could be a political group, that could be um, a religious group, that could be my family, that could be all sorts of different things, but I am getting a personal sense of value and worth out of feeling like my group is superior. And we maintain our sense of self-worth by disparaging others. I am this and not that, and we are better than those people over there. Tribalism um, is, is something that is very deep in human nature, something that is very deep in human history. And, of course, many of our technologies right now are 
using the algorithm to invisibly sort us into tribes where we hear lots of people who sound the same way, reinforcing our beliefs and disrespecting people who disagree with us so that based on whatever it may be, whatever, uh, you know, cultural or political or religious affiliation I identify with, we are the good ones. They are the bad ones. And it makes us feel great. And beloved, I have to warn us that I constantly hear Christian people doing this. All the time. It's very unhealthy, very destructive, very immature. It could be comparing churches to one another. Why are Christians always doing that? Why are we consumer oriented in this way? This church is better than that one. This one's got great music. That one's so good at mission. This one's good at justice. That one's great at Bible preaching. There's just comparison and competition. We can do it with denominations. We are this and not that. We are better than them because we're more biblical or we're more spirit-filled or we're, we're more whatever it may be. We do it sometimes by latching on to individuals. This was happening in Corinth. You remember when Paul was uh, lovingly rebuking the Christians in Corinth for saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. They're all arguing about which leader they identify with. But it's the, the point is they're trying to get some glory from the leader they identify with. And Christians do this all the time. We pick our favorite author. I'm of the tribe of whoever it may be. And they may be wonderful people. God bless Tim Keller. God bless Francis Chan. God bless whoever your person is, John Piper or N.T. Wright or C.S. Lewis or whoever you may like. Thank, aren't you great, glad for great teachers out there? But listen, church, if, we get, if we're getting identity out of identifying with one of those people... And feeling superior to others, it's immature. It's immature, and it can be very destructive. It's competition. It's pride. It's envy. If my group is good, that makes me good. If my church or my favorite author or the podcast that I listen to or the website that I go to, I'm this brand of Christian and not that brand of Christian, that allows me to feel above all the criticisms that people make of other kinds of Christians that make me feel insecure. Is this feeling real yet, church? And the response of Jesus here is remarkable. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And then he moves on. Isn't that quick and simple and easy? He says, hey, that person is trying to do good in my name. Just chill. Just relax, you know. That, that person is trying to do good in my name. Which means they're on your team. If you fight against them, you're fighting against yourself. And Jesus probably could have said, if you fight against them, you're fighting against me. You see, church, the kingdom of Jesus is way bigger than we think. It's way bigger than we think. God has people all over the place doing all sorts of amazing things. You remember the story of Elijah when he was crying out to God and saying, I'm the only one. There's no one but me following you. And God says, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I've got the kingdom is way bigger than what you think. And God has people everywhere. And it's, if we see people, we, maybe we disagree with them about something. But instead of criticizing other people, what if we spent some time celebrating everybody who is doing good in the name of Jesus? Doesn't that sound awesome, church family? The kingdom is bigger than we think. And uh, I just want to say this word of, of caution for us. Well, first, let me ask you a couple positive questions. Who are Christians that you most admire that are not from your tribe? Just want you to think about that. Who are some Christians that you most admire who are not from your tribe? 
Who are, so, who are the Christians that you've learned from that maybe you don't agree with about everything? We, want, we need to be mature. I, I would love to tell you, I'm not a Presbyterian, but I would love to tell you about the Presbyterian friends that I lock arms with all the time to do ministry in the community or the Presbyterian authors that I learn from. Catholics, Pentecostals, there's all sorts of different branches in the body of Christ. I'm not a part of that group, but Jesus is at work there. And if I have uh, a need to disparage what God may be doing through another group, um, then there's something that God, Jesus wants to confront in my heart. But here, here's a caution I want to give you. We just need to be aware of the ways in which our culture and our technology are impacting us. And I want to say to you, friends, social media and YouTube and podcasts are all forms of communication that can be used in good ways. Amen. Anybody ever listen to a podcast or watch YouTube and been very edified? I've done it. And for that reason, uh, I'm on podcasts all the time and I've teaching the Bible on YouTube in a variety of different ways, because if everybody's on there all the time, might as well get some truth out there. But we need to be self-aware of the fact that these technologies are literally designed to sort you into competitive tribes. They're designed to do that. And that means if your primary input and influence becomes those things, it is almost certain you will fall into this trap. And you will start getting very critical of people, including Christians, who are from a different group or tribe or subset than you, you'll start looking through them for critical lenses. You'll have all sorts of buzzwords and tags and names you'll put on it. When I see Christians having disagreements and using those tag words, it's just it's just a clear indicator that they're being formed and shaped by something that they found online. And those those influences influences and that tribalistic impulse can be very destructive and a great way to fight about uh, fight that would be this. Nothing wrong with podcasts, nothing wrong with YouTube. I use all those forms. Who should our number one influence be, church? Jesus. That's a great answer. Jesus. And really, if you want to become a mature, healthy follower of Jesus, I would say, really, if you want to learn, if you want to be a student, I would encourage you, learn from Jesus primarily through these three sources. The Bible, the local church, where there's people who know you well enough to encourage you and rebuke you. You can have a mutual relationship. And then old books by great Christian teachers who have already died and finished well. So you don't have to be disillusioned when their scandal comes out. Amen. All right. That was free. But if you do it, it may help you. All right. Last last little interaction. Let's look at verses 51 through 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, that is Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want you to pause for a second before I keep reading and maybe underline those words. This is a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 51 is the hinge on which this Gospel turns. He's been present in Galilee, ministering there, and now everything is heading towards Jerusalem. And some of you know, what's he going to Jerusalem to do? He's going to die. He's going to lay down his life. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. Who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. This little vignette, this little snapshot gets us to the heart of the matter. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to lay down his life 
for the salvation of the world, for the salvation of his sinful disciples, for the salvation of the Samaritans, to the salvation of distant Gentiles like us, whose ancestors live far, far away from Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die to lay down his life in humility so that his enemies can be redeemed. That is the opposite of pride, comparison, competition, and envy. He's going to die. And as I've already said, Luke 51 is a turning point as well as a reminder that at this point, the disciples really aren't getting his mission at all. Throughout this section, he's been trying to tell them over and over I'm coming to save the world, not by conquering my enemies, but by rescuing my enemies, by giving my life for them. He's been trying to tell them, and they're not hearing it. They're not getting it. And now when Luke uses this powerful phrase, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. First of all, that's a powerful image. Can you, can you visualize it? Jesus looks at Jerusalem. He's determined. He sets his face. Can you picture his face? I love these guys. They're a mess, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to save them. I'm going to pay every cost to save them. And Luke uses this phrase probably also as an allusion to Isaiah chapter 50, verses 7 through 8. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there. But one of the things that's going on in the gospel of Luke is he's helping us see something that Jesus' contemporaries have not yet seen, which is that, which is that. The figure that the, the, figure Old, that the Testament Old Testament scriptures foretold. foretold who would come with power as king to overthrow the forces of evil is the same figure that the Old Testament scriptures foretold who would come in humility to suffer. The suffering servant of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 50, the servant of the Lord, this suffering servant is speaking. And listen to what we read. Verse 7 and 8 says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. So Luke is describing Jesus with the language of Isaiah 50 saying, This is the servant of the Lord who is going to endure suffering and humiliation because he is confident that his God will vindicate him and raise him from the dead. And that confidence gives him a determination. Jesus is determined to save you. Nothing will stop Jesus from going the distance to love you, to redeem you, is what it's saying here. The theme from Isaiah about suffering and vindication is further emphasized by those two little words, taken up, from verse 51. Everybody say, taken up. Those words Luke uses repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke and Acts to refer to a specific moment Namely, the ascension of Jesus. After Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to rise again. Then he's going to be taken up into heaven where he sits on a throne. So in other words, Jesus is operating with a totally different set of priorities, with a totally different plan, and a totally different set of values than his disciples. He is determined. Nothing is going to stop him from going to Jerusalem to die in order to conquer sin, pride, Envy, all the competitive evil that has us destroying one another and destroying ourselves. He's going to die on the cross for us. And then he's going to rise victoriously and he's going to sin and sit down on a throne as the risen king of kings. That's what Jesus is focused on. And as he goes, he's going through Samaria to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Samaria, 
The Samaritans don't want him to come there. They don't receive him. They reject Jesus. Why do they reject Jesus? Well, he's a Jew and he's going to Jerusalem. There's a whole long history. We don't have time to go into all of it. But the, the bitter division between Jews and Samaritans, it goes back centuries. Really, it has roots in the sin of Solomon and Rehoboam, which led to the splitting of the 12 tribes of Israel. And after that split, there began to be not only a political split, but ethnic and religious split. And then after exile, they were carried off in exile at different times. But really, when the, when the people of Israel returned, it was mostly the tribes of Judah. That's why we call them Jews. And Benjamin with a few Levites. So the rest of the tribes remained scattered and they intermarried with other people. They held on to some of their religious heritage, but mostly only the first five books of the Old Testament. And those are the people that some of them came back and settled in Samaria and we call them Samaritans. So there's a deep centuries long fight and division going between these people. Jesus teaches us over and over to love and value Samaritans. He teaches the Jews to do that. But now here's the Samaritans rejecting him. They don't want to have anything to do with him because he's a Jew and he's going to Jerusalem. They hate Jerusalem. So they reject him. And all of a sudden, James and John, two of the three in the inner circle of Jesus, two of the three who saw his glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration a few days before, are filled with righteous indignation, which is a good emotion to beware of. Church, beware of righteous indignation. Often it isn't so righteous. If you're filled with anger at other people's sin, that's often a manifestation of pride and envy, comparison and competition. And they think, I want to be like the prophet Elijah who once called down fire from heaven on some people. And and so they say, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on these guys? I want you to think about this. If the first little story was about individual competition within the community of disciples and the second story was about community competition, our group is better than your group. Maybe this story for us would be more analogous to the church versus the world. And I want you to think about sometimes when you get so frustrated about how things are messed up in the world. If there isn't a part of you that would love to just call down destruction on those bad people out there. Who are making the world unsafe for you and your friends and your kids. Beware of that kind of righteous, self-righteous indignation. What James and John don't see. Is that the Samaritans rejected Jesus because of their pride and envy. In comparison and competition, which was the very same evil that has been lurking in their own hearts this whole time. Why is the world so messed up today, church? I want you to think about that question. If you're filled with rage and anger and angst towards those bad people out there, ask yourself the question, why is it so messed up? Why is it so bad? Do you want to know the answer? The Bible makes it plain. Because those people out there have the same stuff in their hearts that's in your heart. And that's in my heart. This is challenging, isn't it? Jesus rebukes them. We're not told what he says. I think the, the real content of his rebuke is what we already read in verse 51. I'm going to save them. I'm going to die for them. I want to lay down my life. 
By the time we get to the book of Acts, the apostles are going to be leading a movement of God in Samaria. Isn't it awesome how the Holy Spirit can change a life, can change a perspective? And then, verse 56, the big climax. How does Jesus respond when they reject him? And they went on to another village. <laughs> He's just like, ah, let's go to another town. He's relaxed about it. He's chill about it. Now, church, I want to invite you to step back for a moment to think about the deep meaning of these three stories. Studying this this week, I, I think the Holy Spirit was bringing some conviction into my heart on some things. things. And, I hope, and I hope that you're experiencing that too. Conviction is not condemnation. The devil condemns. He says, you're a big sinner and that's who you are. Therefore, God's upset at you all the time. What the Holy Spirit does is help you see something that's broken inside of you so that God can heal you. And he says to you, that's not who you are. And God wants to invite you into a deeper experience of his love. The Holy Spirit invites us to freedom. Freedom from comparison. Freedom from pride and envy and competition. And we've got to recognize that we all do it. Can I share one more verse with you before we wrap up? I was thinking about this verse all week as I meditated on these stories. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 if you want to flip to it. Ecclesiastes is right after... Proverbs. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. There's a book of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is one of those books that is not for the faint of heart. It makes us face the brokenness of the world and it makes us face the brokenness in our own lives. If you're wanting to not have your feelings hurt, don't read Ecclesiastes and don't listen to what I'm about to say. Okay. But it's trying to hurt our feelings in the spirit of love. Ecclesiastes 4.4 is one of the most challenging verses you can read. It says, then I saw... That all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Wow. Did you hear that? Ecclesiastes said all toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. What does that mean? It means if you're a really, really great engineer, it's because you're driven by competition and comparison. If you're a really, really great teacher, it's because you're driven by competition and comparison, just so you don't feel singled out. If you're a really, really great preacher, or at least you aspire to be one, <laughs> then you're driven by comparison and competition. Even if you're a really, really, really great parent who, who works hard at you're driven. You may be saying, are you saying there's no good in us? No, I don't think he's saying there's no good in you. I know that you do what you do because you love people, Okay. But Ecclesiastes is making us face the reality. It's not only true that we're made in the image of God and that if you trust in Christ, you're a new creation. It's also true that sin, the voice of sin lurks within us and keeps tempting us and keeps challenging us that very often we're driven by this. I mean, we could just make it really plain like us. Um, who loves to look like a fool in front of others? Who would like to be perceived as a failure? Who wants everybody to think you're unimportant? Who likes it when people think that you are successful, important, and good? Okay, a lot of y'all are liars. Okay, there you go. <laughs> we all like to be viewed as that. And what, what the Bible is alerting us to is that can become an idol really easy, really quick, and we may not even notice it. And actually what I would suggest is that the more aware we are of that sign, the better, or, or that struggle, the better. Christians who identify themselves in their own minds as super mature Christians are usually baby Christians. 
There's been a few times where I, I asked a, a believer, how are you doing? And the response has literally been like, pretty good. Haven't sinned in the last couple of weeks. And you know, it's like, bless your heart, right? <laughs> That's a baby Christian. Um, one of the paradoxes of the Christian life is the, the more we grow in the Lord, the more aware we become of our own sin. Or you could say it like this. The more mature we get, the less mature we tend to think that we are. Because the way that the journey to spiritual maturity often works is that Jesus comes to us in love. He confronts us in love. He shows us we're big sinners, but that he still loves us. He shows us that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. We trust in him and we're forgiven and then we feel so happy. And then God starts to work in our hearts and we begin to work on changing our behaviors. We can't change our behaviors in our own strength any more than we could forgive our own sins in our own strength. We need God's grace, don't we, church? And over time, we start to make some progress on our behaviors. But then we start realizing even when we're, we switch from doing bad things to doing good things, we might be doing the good things for the wrong reason. And now we're starting to work on inner transformation. And guess what? That's really hard. That's really hard. And you need a lot of grace. And it's a lifelong process. But what I want you to notice from this story before we wrap up is this, church. Did Jesus wait for the disciples to get their souls all sorted out before he invited them into relationship? Did they have to be free from comparison and pride and envy and competition before they could embrace the joy and adventure of following Jesus? No. So do you have to have your life all sorted out before you can start following him? No. The good news of the gospel is this. Your acceptance by God is not dependent on how sorted out all your motives are. Your acceptance by God, your justification is based on Jesus alone. Jesus died on the cross so that ungodly people could be counted righteous by grace through faith in his name. He died on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be accepted by grace, though we do not deserve it, through faith in his name and... So that he could fill us with the Holy Spirit that little by little we could peel off the layers of those self-destructive tendencies and become the true version of who we are. I've been talking about the ongoing struggle of sin in our lives. But what I really want you to leave with is the encouragement. You, probably we're done dealing with the temptation to comparison and pride and envy when we see Jesus face to face in heaven. But in the meantime, we do not have to be mastered by those sins. In Christ, you can live in freedom. Those temptations do not have to control you. Did you hear that, church? I don't think you heard it. Isaiah heard it in the back. Thank you, Isaiah. I appreciate that. Sometimes I need that from the back. Church, you may not be done battling the temptation to pride till you go to heaven, but you can live in freedom where it doesn't dominate you today by the power of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is invite you now to stand up. And as we're about to sing a song of worship to the Lord, just recognize that these stories have been given to us by a mirror, not to shame us, but to expose sickness in us so that we can be healed by grace. And all of Jesus' responses in this story to the sin of his disciples are, are pure grace. He says, hey, stop focusing so much on yourself. Start loving somebody else and I will take up my home in your heart. 
He says, don't stress out about all those people you think are your competition. They're actually on your side. Relax. And he says, don't worry about calling down fire to destroy your enemies. I'm going to redeem them. Even as I'm going to redeem you. I want to invite you now just to bow your heads for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what what is God wanting to show you about your own heart today? That there may need to be some work done and, and what would repentance, what would turning away from the slavery of pride and comparison in order to embrace the freedom of faith look like for you? And then I'm going to say a prayer for you.